Alrighty, welcome back everybody, and welcome all the new subscribers. Had a lot of new subscribers over the last week. Seems like the channel's catching on, so thanks everybody that have been spreading it and sharing it. Appreciate that. But I wanted to give a quick rundown because I did a video uh, last week, or I, I did it earlier this week. It's a, a video about Dave Ramsey. It's like a couple things I disagree with him on, and I tried to open it up to more discussion and give some, some thought-provoking questions about him. And that wasn't a normal part of my series. I have done two videos that aren't really normal parts of my series. Really, what the focus of this channel is and what I'm doing for the new people that might not be familiar is I have this portfolio here. This is a uh, dividend growth investment portfolio. It started two months ago. I first posted my video on YouTube. At the time, I had $25,000. Now it's up to almost $35,000. I've been funding it aggressively, building it aggressively. Of course, the gains and the dividends and the reinvestment have helped up this number as well. But what I'm doing is giving you a front row seat to see week after week, month after month, and quarter after quarter, how this type of portfolio performs. What it is, it's broken up in a bunch of different sectors. Each sector I, I can click into and I have a bunch of different holdings. In this video, I'm going to be going over my real estate holdings. These are uh, REITs, um, which are real estate investment trusts. And they sound a little confusing if you're new to investing and you're just like, well, I know what a stock and a company is. What is a REIT? Sounds a little odd. I'm going to be going over that. I'm going to be going over these holdings, why I chose them. And yeah, just this whole sector of real estate and why it makes up the largest chunk of my portfolio. So right now it's at 33%. One third of the money that I deposit into this goes into real estate. Now, this portfolio has a lot of holdings. It has 60. M1 Finance, this brokerage is pretty cool how it helps me manage it. It, uh, it allows me to break it up into these sectors. It automatically disperses the money into the underweight holdings through fractional shares, and it has all these cool features. But you can do this type of investing with any broker, dividend growth investing. And it's a type of investing where most investors, they buy a company at one price and they want the, that price to increase over time to a higher price. And then they want to sell. That's not really what I'm doing here. What I'm doing is buying companies that pay dividends, that meet certain metrics. Once those dividends are paid to me, I reinvest them and I put those that new money from those dividends and new cash into other dividend paying companies or the same ones. Most of the time it goes into other ones that happen to fall in price during that week or that time period that I'm purchasing. Now, this is an active cycle with this many holdings, 60 different holdings, all of them paying at different times of the year, and some of them pay monthly, most of them pay quarterly, but they all have different payment schedules. That means I get money flowing in almost all the time. This week I actually had just one day that I received a dividends, which is pretty rare. Most weeks I have like two or three days out of the five that pay dividends. But if I go to this, this uh, day that I received dividends, I received 17 bucks. So not the best week, but not terrible either. I had a bunch of bond ETFs pay, and then I had Merck pay on the $2. Together it was 17 bucks. Then what that did was instead of just getting reinvested back into these holdings themselves, it went into the underweight holdings, which is LTC, Medtronics, Merck, Welltower, these different holdings. And that's what happens day after day, week after week. All my holdings pay out dividends. Those dividends get reinvested into new holdings. And that is what this is. Now I track it on a monthly graph here. I've showed you this before, people familiar with the channel, that you can see the trend line go up here. Last month, so in March, I received in payment $108 in dividends just for that month. And it's going up pretty quickly. If I actually look at the one month view here, let's go to that. 
So my overall gain, this is like total return is 648. The market capitalization that has gone up isn't my biggest focus. So I have the breakdown of two different ways that you earn money here. Market gains, 489. The thing I care about more is look at that earned dividends. From the past 30 days, since March 12th, I've earned $158.99. So pretty much $159 in dividends in the last 30 days. That's pretty incredible. If I just go and zoom that to the week, market gain is uh, $10. Dividends, $28 this week. I didn't do anything for it. I think dividends and interest on bonds are one of the truly passive forms of income that you can have. There's not that many of them. If you own real estate and you have to manage it, that takes a lot more hands-on than this type of portfolio. Now, I want to uh, not spend too long. I have a lot to go over in this this particular episode. I'm going to first go over the real estate holdings and go through each one of them, explain to you why I bought them, what I know about them, um, and basically what real estate holding is, why I have 33% of it, all that type of stuff. Um, I also wanted to talk about Disney. They're in, the, uh, they're in the news for launching their streaming service. This isn't something surprising, but a lot of people seem surprised by it. And then there is uh, the Uber IPO. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about that. And then answering some questions from the Dave Ramsey video I did last, uh, last episode. So I'll jump right into it. Let's go to real estate here. Now, I wanted to go over why Realty Income Corp is my biggest holding in all of my portfolio. Uh, but I also, to kick this off, this going over all of these different holdings, I wanted to just review a few of the rules of when I buy and sell companies. I had a question asked by someone over here. So Lucas Young on Twitter, I have a Twitter, you can follow me at Joe, Joe Carlson Show on Twitter. But he asked me, hey, I was rewatching episode eight. You made a statement that you had a plan on when to sell. Can you share that? Yes, I have a plan on when I sell and when I buy. When I buy is more complicated than when I sell. I don't make a specific plan for every single time I reinvest in a company. I do take in a lot of factors when I initially introduce a company as a new holding. So when I sell is pretty simple. There's only real two main reasons when I sell a company. The first one is if they cut or slash their dividend. And the second reason that I sell is because the underlying story the whole idea of the company, what they're doing, their prospects, their future seems to be eroding. So if that happens, I'll sell the company. And if they cut a slash the dividend, I'll sell the company. There's, of course, a few exceptions to this rule, and I'll be going over those. But that's the gist of it. Now, when to buy. Um, I had somebody else on one of my YouTube videos ask a lot of questions. He was confused of what he looks at to introduce a new position in his portfolio, why I chose these specific ones. And I'd rather, I'd rather you look at what I do to actually find companies than just copy the ones that I've already found. So let's take a look at a couple different things I'll look at. First, I'll go to the Seeking Alpha page. This website here is seekingalpha.com. I don't have any affiliation with it. There's other alternatives that you can use as well, like uh, Yahoo Finance and a few others. I like this one not not really because of like the articles. I like it more because of the tools it has here to, to view stocks and their dividend history and all that type of stuff. I'm going to be using this website to look at a few things here. The first thing I want to do is give you a couple different factors you can look at when trying to research a dividend paying company. What you do is you go to this, this website here. So this is if you just go to the website. This will be like the homepage. Up here in the search bar, you type in O or Realty Income. That'll bring up the company with the ticker symbol. Click into that and then boom, your hair. It has like recent articles and recent news on it. You can see if they've what they've been up to, the company. But I want to show you just a couple key things to look at. 
The first thing, let's go over to this dividend tab here. You can see the starting yield. This is if you open a position right now, what your yield would be, 3.8%. When I entered this position, that yield was above 5%. The cost on yield right now, is it's more expensive than when I opened up the position. And that's probably why I'm up 36% on it because I got it at a time where real estate was getting crushed, money was moving out of it, all that type of stuff. Just And it wasn't too long ago, maybe, maybe seven months ago. So I entered the position at a pretty good time but that's one thing you look at is a starting yield. With REITs, I would try to not really enter a REIT position with too much below a 4% yield. They should be a lot higher than the market because what a real estate investment trust is, their primary goal is to buy real estate and real estate assets that people and tenants pay rent. And then they distribute that cash to shareholders because they have to distribute a certain amount and then they're not taxed by the government. So the government isn't taxing these companies when they're distributing their money out. And that's why you actually have to pay income tax on them because they're already skipping one side of the government tax. So your tax is income on the other side. Now, that's all a real estate investment trust is. Looks kind of funny when you look at a REIT. It, it sounds odd if you're new to investing. It's very simple. Instead of like you going out and just buying an apartment yourself, it's as if a big company that had a lot of capital and a lot of funding, they said, let's create a business. Let's buy a whole um, distributed portfolio of real estate in all different type of tenants. So if just retailers fail, then we also have like manufacturers and different types of things. And let's uh, return that money to shareholders. That's all a real estate investment trust is. One thing you look at is a starting yield. Another thing you look at is the dividend frequency. So this company pays out monthly, which is nice because you get further compounding with it. I'm getting monthly money that I can reinvest back into other companies instead of having to wait every quarter. That's not the biggest factor. And I wouldn't, I would not recommend going out and finding only monthly companies. If you have enough companies themselves, if you have enough holdings, they will distribute at different times anyways. So you don't have to worry about the how frequent they distribute. The only ones that I try to avoid are ones that only pay out one time a year. Those are the only ones. Other than that, I don't think the dividend frequency is too important, but it is kind of cool that they pay out monthly. Now, other things I'd look at. The dividend growth. Let's, let's click on that tab. You can look at this and you can see right here it has a steady dividend growth. So the last year they raised it 3.84%. The last three years, average is 5.1%. Last 10 years, average is 4.8%. So you know with this company, they seem to be having a harder time keeping up with really high dividend growth, but they're already paying out a pretty good dividend. They're paying it out monthly. So having a 4 or 5% dividend growth is pretty good, certainly beats inflation. And the fact that their capital, the capital appreciation is growing along with that is pretty good. Next thing you can look at is the dividend safety. REITs are a little bit different. If you were buying a normal equity, like let's say you're just buying a normal company, um, like you're buying Costco or you're buying any Walmart or McDonald's or any just kind of normal dividend paying company that's not a REIT, the payout ratio for a normal company, you want it to be like 60% or below. That means that out of their profit, they're only paying you less than 60% of it out of their net profit. If they're paying 90% of their net profit to you, that means that they don't have a lot of profit to reinvest. REITs are mandated by the government. In order to be tax-free, they have to pay out like over 80%. It's a really high number. Um, so they usually pay uh, like 70 to 80%. Now, 
REITs are mandated by the government to pay out a really high percentage of their profits, their net profits, in order to uh, not have to pay income taxes on their net profits. So they do that. 93% is a little high, even for a REIT, that's, that's pretty high. But they're not in trouble. A lot of uh, REITs will get over 100% when they're highly leveraged and they took out loans to get new properties that will have future growth. We're not in really that territory of them being really in danger, in my opinion. I don't think that they're in a lot of danger here. Now, another thing you can look at is the dividend history. This is a really big one when you're looking at a new position. I click on all here and you can see their dividend history is pretty much as solid as it gets. And that's Realty Income Corp. They're expensive because people like them, investors like them, because they've had such a stellar dividend history. Other things you can look at is when you're buying a new company, you can look at all this stuff. You can look at the dividend scoreboard here, look at their starting yield. You can look at the, the dividend growth and see the percentages they've been increasing it, the history and the payout ratio and the dividend, you know, all their dividend payments in the previous years and see that they're growing and there's a good trend of them growing. But that shouldn't be the only thing you look at. You should do like a little bit of research on the company to see what they actually do, how diversified they are, and that type of thing. When I looked at Realty Income Corp, I actually just go to their website, look at the information that they put on it. You can look at their portfolio here. I can go and look at their top 20 tenants. So these are the companies that are tenants in their buildings, the top 20. It shows you the number of leases that each one of them have. They're so diversified. So Walgreens is their top tenant with 6.3%. And Realty Income Corp, they only own large, like standalone buildings. And, it, you know, they have a carousel going here of different tenants that they have. You can look at the portfolio. You can look at the portfolio occupancy here. So let's take a look at that. And check this out. I look at this history. When I initially looked at this, I was like, well, I wonder how they do in recessions. And I can go to 09 and they're averaging like 99%, goes down to 97% for a little bit, 98. And then in 09, it went down to 96.8%, the 96.6. Their lowest, they've never been below 96%, even during the Great Recession. That's how good that they've been able to keep their keep their uh, places rented, which is pretty remarkable. They have a good solid history. They're diversified. They have a pretty low starting yield right now compared to when they historically have. But you take that into account. I think it's a solid company. Um, when I bought it, I think I was getting a better deal than if you went and jumped into it right now. But that's kind of how it goes. I didn't get that same type of deal on every company that I bought. That's Realty Income Corp. Let's take a look at a couple other ones. There's a theme throughout this too. If you look at all my holdings, I have, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So I have nine different REITs from 16% to six. The reason that I have so many here is because it makes up a big chunk of my portfolio, but it's diversification. So let me give you an example of that. I want diversification within this sector. So the, the sector is real estate. I want diversification within real estate. And I showed you the top holding, which is Realty Income Corp. And that is a company that invests in commercial single tenant places like Walmart, Walgreens, those type of places. LTC Properties, which is my second biggest holding, let's take a look at their profile. From Yahoo Profiles here, I think they give a good description of these companies. So I can look at that, and LTC holds more than 200 investments in 28 states. The portfolio is comprised of approximately 50% senior housing, 50% skilled nursing properties. They are a healthcare REIT that invests in properties that are senior housing and skilled nursing properties. Quite different than Realty Income Corp. And that's what I want, is I want them to be 
different and subject to different struggles and I want them to go down or up different times. The only thing that would bring all of these down is if just all real estate got hurt, which could happen. But uh, LTC properties, let's go in and look at the numbers on that one real quick. If I go into it, LTC properties dividend scoreboard here. So they have a 4.9% dividend yield right now, 5%. That's not really bad if you bought them to them right now. If I go to the dividend history, this one gives you a more full picture of just their growth over time. They started off really high way back in 2005. The dividends reset. And ever since then, it's just been a long, steady growth of, of dividend payments. And they pay out monthly. I think it's a pretty good holding to have. You look at dividend safety here, 79% payout ratio, which is pretty good. I think that's right around where the government requires them in order to be tax-free on that income is to be around that 79%, that 80% payout ratio. Let's move on from that. If I go to Simon Property, Simon Property, let me read the profile on that. So Simon Property is a global leader in ownership and premier shopping, dining, entertainment, and mixed-use destinations, and an S&P 100 company. Simon Property is one of the biggest REITs ever. And they own what people think is the dying sector, which is like malls and entertainment places. And Amazon has, has hurt a lot of different companies that have been in malls. But it's not, I don't think it's a dying sector. I do think people like getting out and going shopping. And those type of places end up doing pretty well. We can actually look at the numbers here and see if the numbers speak for themselves. I go to the dividend scoreboard, 4.3% yield. Not terrible, but not like amazing either. If I go to the dividend history here, look at this. So look at their dividend growth here. Over the past 10 years, it's been pretty solid. They dropped down a little bit. They cut their dividend a little bit during 2009. Ever since then, they've been able to slowly up it. If I go to the dividend growth here. Yeah, so pretty solid dividend growth. You're seeing numbers almost, you know, in the high single digit numbers of dividend growth year over year. Their safety, 77% payout ratio. Not terrible there. Now, we can move on to the next one, store capital. This is a Warren Buffett holding. Uh, I saw that he bought it and that piqued my interest because he usually likes to buy things at pretty low prices and I was already looking for REITs to buy. So I did some research on them. Now, store capital, if I go to the dividend scoreboard here, they're 4%. Their history is, they're a pretty, I don't think they're too old of a company. Store capital is similar. I believe it has the same type of business model as Realty Income Corp, where they look at single tenant, single tenant commercial real estate. I think it's a pretty solid holding, gives you a little bit more diversification. I believe they own around 2,000 properties throughout the U.S. Well Tower, that's another health one here. Let's read the description on that one. Well Tower. It says the company invests with leading senior housing operators, post acute providers and healthcare systems to fund real estate infrastructure needed to scale and innovative care delivery and improve wellness. Pretty much what they do is they see a lot of like outpatients. They see people that have been older people that are, that need a care and assistance. It's another senior housing healthcare provider. And I think that LTC properties and NL and uh, sorry, LTC properties and well tower, I think that even though they're in the healthcare industry and there's a lot of concerns of how we're going to pay for all that type of stuff, I think that they're pretty safe considering that there's a lot of baby boomers. They're going to need to be taken care of somehow. And as people go through and they get older and they need some kind of assisted care living, that these ones will do good. There's always going to be demand for them is what I think. They always are going to have a customer. Beyond that, there is a couple exceptions. So I said there's a couple exceptions to how I sell a company. The rule was if they cut or slash a dividend or if the underlining story of the company is eroding. But I have two holdings here within my REITs that are M REITs. And if you don't know what an M REIT is, it's a mortgage REIT. 
Now, mortgage REITs are a little bit different. They're a whole different beast. And I don't really follow my rule of if they cut their dividends, selling them right away. Because they pay such a higher dividend and there's so much more leverage that they often pay out just as much as they can given the current market. The market drops it all. If interest rates change, if anything in the environment changes, a lot of times they'll cut or slash their dividend and they'll pay what they can at that moment, whatever their profit is at that moment. And their profitability is always changing. They're different beasts. And these are two different companies, NLY and NL and NRZ. NLY and NRZ. If I actually go in to NLY here, check out this dividend history. It's like going on a roller coaster. Goes up, goes down, goes flat. Sometimes they sometimes they miss quarterly payments where they pay, and that's how it is. If I actually go to the dividend scoreboard here, they have a 12% yield right now. And that's how they always are. They pay as much as their profit as they're able to pay right then. So this is a company that if they cut their dividend, that I would sell right away. I view this differently. The context of when I buy them and sell them are different. I view it as a just an income machine. I just look at it to seed income, to provide income for my other holdings, to build up those other holdings. I'm not looking for these ones to have that gradual slope of dividend income that other ones have, that Realty Income Corp has. And that's the same with NRZ. If I go to dividend safety here, they pay out ratios 100%. And that's pretty normal for a mortgage REIT. When they get over like 120%, that's when they're in danger of cutting their dividend. The moral of the story is if you're buying mortgage REITs, NRZ and NLY, you should not be shocked if they cut their dividend, if they slash their dividend. That shouldn't be a surprise to you. They're highly leveraged. They have a much higher yield. If I go to NRZ, same thing. Dividend scoreboard. Dividend yield is 12% starting. If I go to the dividend history here, the same thing. It's mostly flat, but they've been up and down before in the past. And so again, you shouldn't be surprised if they have to temporarily cut their dividend because they were overly leveraged and they have to pay off some debt or whatever. That's how these companies go. My metrics for buying and selling them are different than all my other holdings. Alrighty, and the last one is Iron Mountain. Now, Iron Mountain, I've talked about before that it was the one that I was the most concerned with. That was more a statement about the qualitative part of it. They store physical files that companies need. Now, they have a lot of great contracts with a lot of big companies. It doesn't look like they're going to have trouble anytime soon. But just their business model of being a storage facility for physical paper goods for companies in a, in a world that's completely moving digital is just a concern. I think that they're having to shift but they seem to be making that change okay. Let's go look at some of the details of them. If we look at their payout ratio, that's probably the top concern here. Their payout ratio is 150%. And most dividend analysts that look at these companies and review them and and look at their, their safety, meaning are they likely to cut their dividend in the future, rate them that they're pretty unlikely to cut their dividend because this 150% that they're in debt right now, they should be able to return that below 100% pretty soon. Sometimes they have liabilities and upcoming things that make this number pretty high temporarily. Now, if I go to dividend scoreboard here, I'm going to start with the starting yield. It's a high yielder. They pay quarterly, but it's 7% a year. If I go to the dividend growth here, they have a pretty solid growth too. Let's look at the history. It's hard to see this because they have a couple special dividends. But in the last year, they've raised their dividend 5%. Over the, the average over the past three years is 7.5%. And you can see that their payments have been going up. I still hold them in my portfolio. I think that they're a pretty solid REIT. Um, they have some good contracts with a lot of different companies. I've actually worked at a company that, that used Iron Mountain before. 
and they use them primarily to go shred, like shred confidential documents. So if you have a company that has one of those special garbage cans that you can throw documents in and there's no way that you can get them out, they have like people come in and go and take those and they really just take the whole things back themselves and incinerate them. They do contracts like that. They do storage management and they're moving into digital storage as well. That wraps up the whole real estate side of things. I hope that this was helpful and gives you some ideas of things you can look at. If you have any questions about them, you can too let me know in the comments. Uh, beyond that, I wanted to move on to some of the news. So Disney came out and they introduced their new streaming service and they gave us a look at it. I want to show a video of it first. So let's go to that real quick. For the first time, our incredible brands, Disney, Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, and National Geographic are together in one deeply engaging experience. This is captured by the brand tiles at the center. These brand tiles animate as you move over them and lead to areas of the service that showcase the very best of that particular brand. I'd like to quickly show you what the service will look like on a tablet with another working prototype. Along the bottom navigation bar, you'll see one of the key features of the mobile experience, which I spoke about earlier, the ability to download any content on Disney Plus and view it offline and on the go with no restrictions on an unlimited basis for as long as you're a subscriber. So that is actually a huge feature right there. The fact that you can download any of the files locally, because a lot of parents that want the Disney service and they want them on tablets, they want it so that when they go traveling, when they go on road trips, they can download them onto their iPads and have their kids watch them during traveling. So that's a pretty cool feature that they threw in. There's no restrictions on the downloading. That's a very key uh, consumer benefit. Overall, we've released 44 Disney Animation Studio, Pixar, Marvel, and Star Wars branded films since 2006, driving more than $37 billion in box office, which averages out to about $850 million per movie. And all of these films will be available on Disney Plus immediately after their theatrical and home entertainment windows. So check out this. They have like Star Wars originals, Marvel originals. They're creating a lot of originals too, just for this Disney They've platform. More valuable and compelling for consumers. I'm excited to announce that Disney Plus will be available to U.S. consumers on November 12th, 2019. And we will be launching the service with a very attractive monthly price of $6.99, as well as an annual option for $69.99, which works out for those mathematically inclined to $5.83 per month. Okay. That's a look at the Disney streaming service. If you haven't been keeping up with this, Disney has been kind of teasing that they're going to come out with this service for a very long time. And this has been something that I think is going to be really big for the company. A lot of people, especially when I look around Reddit, they downplay how popular that this will be. I don't think they, it might just be the demographic. Maybe like a lot of them don't have kids or something because they seem to be comparing it to Netflix. Oh, this is a competitor to Netflix. Everybody wants to compare this to Netflix. This Disney streaming platform really isn't much of a competitor to Netflix. And let me try to explain that. All right, so here's a comment that I made eight months ago, and I wanted to read just a couple parts of this. I say that Disney streaming service set to release sometime in 2019 will have no rated R content. How do you consider something a competitor to Netflix when Netflix caters to mature content? It's simply not a competitor to Netflix in this regard. Netflix's biggest competitor right now is HBO, next is Amazon, and after that is likely going to be Apple when they enter the original content. I would rank Disney maybe fourth on that list of competition. So this is what I said eight months ago, and I still believe that today. If you look at Disney's offering 
what they're actually offering is they're af they're offering content that can be consumed safely by the whole family. Something that you could give your kid the remote for and not have to worry what they click on. And I don't think that Netflix does a great job with the kids' shows. So I think that Disney service is going to be really big. If you look at uh, the Wall Street Journal article here, they say that Disney Plus expects to have between 60 and 90 million subscribers by the end of 2024. 60 to 90. So to give you an idea, I think Netflix has just over 50 million now in the U.S. Let's take a look at that. Yeah, so Netflix has 58 million subscribers in the U.S., and before 2024, Disney expects to have 60 to 90 million subscribers. I think they very well could hit that. If Disney's able to get that many people subscribed to their service, they're going to zoom ahead of Netflix in value. Because right now, the biggest reason that Disney is valued so low, like in comparison to Netflix and others, is because they don't have a growth path. They have other great things. They have all their content. They have their parks. They have their merchandise. But the growth path is what's holding them back. And this streaming service is a clear growth path. Beyond that, I had some people ask questions about Uber. Behind Uber's slowing growth, onslaught of global competition takes a toll. Now, the, the biggest problem with me trying to analyze Uber as an IPO is that I've really never used their service. I've, I think I've been in an Uber like one or two times when, a friend, uh, when I was with a friend. I have a buddy that used it all the time in New York City. He seemed to like it. But I just haven't got, I haven't lived in a place where I've needed to use Uber all the time. I have two cars I own and I drive those around anywhere I go. So I don't really have a good qualitative approach to Uber. I also am reluctant to invest in IPOs. I see them as a lot of times as a way for early investors to cash out. There's a lot of times where they drop right after opening for a significant amount of time and slowly raise up. So even if I was going to invest in Uber early, I would probably just wait a few weeks or a month after it opens up. I think it's just a gamble at the beginning. So I can't say not to invest in it. If you think it's a great company with a great future, that there's it's going to take over that type of thing. But evaluating it at $100 billion, I just I would never put my money in it. That's just my two cents on it. The next thing was, if you missed last episode, it was me exploring some of the things that advice that Dave Ramsey gives. Specifically, he had a video where he said that debit cards were just as safe as credit cards and a few other things on mortgages and, and investing, that type of thing. I had a lot of good responses on it. I wanted to go over just one of them here. This person, SQ111000, put this big comment on the video and I thought it was pretty interesting. So I wanted to go through just a little bit of it here. He says... I think that you're missing out that Dave Ramsey is not about the most efficient way of getting out of debt. What is more important to him is people in debt follow through and the end and do become debt free and stay that way. And I totally get that. So I've listened to Dave Ramsey for a while. I know that he doesn't like to do things by just the pure numbers and math. He does it by the psychological component. So this user highlights that the debt snowball, that instead of laying things out in interest, he lays them out in the smallest size so you can knock them out fast. You get that dopamine boost by knocking out your smaller debts and you get the snowball rolling. I agree with all of that. He goes down and he says, yeah, sure, it's true using debit cards instead of credit cards. Yes, in most cases of fraud, you might get some more protection from most credit cards than most debit cards, but the risk is actually quite small, which is why it makes news. If it were common, it wouldn't be news. Okay, so that's the thing. In that video, Dave Ramsey wasn't making the argument that yes, debit cards were a little less secure than credit cards, but the benefit of them controlling your finances and being more responsible with debit, not being in debt, 
far outweighs his security concern. He didn't say that. He just said that they're the same security. That's the impression that he gives people is that you're just as secure using a debit as a credit card, which isn't true. Anytime that you're giving out an account that has your money directly linked to it, that's less secure than giving out an account like a credit card that has somebody else's money linked to it. Now, I actually wanted to go over and just show a, a budgeting way that if you still want to use a debit card and do what Dave Ramsey's suggesting by not having, if he calls a credit card the cigarettes of the financial world, right? He thinks that they're these kind of addictive, bad things that hurt you over time. That's what he thinks a credit card is. Now, if you're on that train and you wanna follow Dave Ramsey's advice and you wanna use a debit card, I wanted to draw out a quick way that I would recommend to get the best of both worlds, where you can manage your finances through a debit card, not overspend, but you can also mitigate the chances of fraud. So let me go to the drawing board here. I'm gonna draw out a, let's draw this out, a checking account here. And this is your main checking account, which you have your home mortgage linked to, and you have your utilities, you have your internet, you have all these different main monthly reoccurring things linked to it, right? Now, what most people do with a debit is they also just use this account, and they, they, they fill out a debit card, they have the information here, and they use it here, but since this is also linked to your mortgage or your rent and it's linked to your utilities, you usually have quite a bit of money in here. You might have like 5K or 4, four or 5K in here, whatever. You might even have more money. Some people keep like $15,000 in their, their checking account here. What I would do is I would not link a debit card to this account. I mean, you might have one, but I would just never use that debit card. I would have your checking account linked to all your expenses here, and then I would open up a separate checking account here. Most banks allow you to open up multiple checking accounts for free and you can manage them in the same app. And then this is the one that I would use the debit card on. So you have your debit card here. And what I would do is every week I would transfer over X amount of money. So you might have a family budget and you say, hey, let's transfer over $200 a week from our main one that has a four or 5,000 to this account. And then this one, since this one only has $200 in it, guess what? That helps us budget. Because now, when we spend all of our $200, it's gone. That's a budget. We spend 200 bucks a week or whatever it may be. But the benefit of this as well is if a fraudster gets a hold of your account here and they try to charge it, the most that they'll ever get out of it is $200. They can't rack up and drain your four dollars to $5,000 or whatever you have in this one. So this is a way to partition it and mitigate the risk of them draining your account that also allows you to get the benefits the psychological benefits, the benefits that Dave Ramsey's adamant about, about not not easing your way back into overspending and, and getting back into debt through a credit card. That's what I would recommend, having two checking accounts, having weekly, moving money over weekly, not having overdraft protection with this. So disable that if you have that on this account. And then you have a budgeted, just as good as cash account here that really mitigates your risk of, of fraud. I'm going to go ahead and leave it there because we're running a little long in this video, but I'll keep updating you guys with how this portfolio is performing, the whole overview of it. It's been a lot of fun. Honestly, having a portfolio that's constantly paying you cash flow, being able to look and see, man, I'm, you know, I'm getting up to the point where now my goal is trying to earn $200 a month in dividends. That's a cool thing to be able to have totally passive income. It's a fun thing. I like seeing you guys build up your portfolios and let me know how it goes. And I'm going to keep you up to date with this. I'll be coming out with more of these videos next week. And so I'll talk to you guys then. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button, share it with friends, all that type of stuff. I'll see you guys.